Amen. Well, you guys can go ahead and have a seat. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and get those and turn to Exodus chapter 9. Uh, if you're new with us this morning, maybe joining us online, uh, or maybe you missed our service last week, I quickly want to catch you up to speed uh, on where we're at as a church. So over the past couple months, we've been working through the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible. And last week, we arrived at the famous 10 plagues of Egypt. Last week, Eric walked us through the first four plagues, and my task for today is to take us through the next five, plagues five to nine. One of the major themes that we're going to see today is the idea of idolatry, Uh, and I'm going to get into this and flesh it out as we go, but idolatry in short, it simply means putting something in the place of God that isn't God. So maybe you've never thought about it this way, but we all have a God, we all have idols, we all worship something. And to that idea, unless you live under a rock, I think all of us at this point uh, have heard about new Tampa resident and quarterback Tom Brady. Uh, Obviously, Tom Brady is one of the best football players of all time. I would argue without a doubt he is the GOAT, there's no doubt. Even though I am a Rams fan and he's beaten us twice in the Super Bowl, it's a sensitive subject, but that's okay. Uh, Anyway, I bring him up because when we think about Tom Brady, he feels like the epitome of success Uh, and what every single American would only hope to be. Again, he has what all of us as a culture tend to idolize. He's won multiple Super Bowls and MVPs. Uh, Again, he's the GOAT when it comes to football. He also has all the resources he could ever want, which means that he can buy big houses, nice cars. Again, he can buy anything his heart desires. And on top of that, he has a supermodel wife and a beautiful family. So again, he seems to have everything that as a culture we idolize. But In an interview several years ago, some of you might be familiar with this, uh, as Tom Brady sat at the prime of his career with accolades, money, a supermodel wife, he said something rather shocking. He said, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it is. You've reached your goal, your dream, your life. But then he says something that, again, most of us would consider pretty shocking. He says, but I think there has to be more than this. So Tom Brady, at the height of everything that we lift up as a culture, He looks at everything that he has and says there has to be more than this. This is the reality of idolatry. We lift up things, we lift up success, we lift up the American dream, and we say, if I could just get there, I would be satisfied. But here we have one of the most successful people in the world saying there has to be more than this. I mean, how can someone like Tom Brady say that? Well, as we study the 10 plagues today, I think we're going to get some answers to those questions. Uh, And by the way, Tom, If you happen to be joining us online, just want to say welcome to Tampa Bay. We're glad you're here. Also, we'd love to have you join us next week. Uh, So just know that that invitation is open. Uh, But as Eric mentioned last week, we are, we're covering a lot of ground as we work through the 10 plagues. Because of that, we're not going to be walking verse by verse through the text. Uh, Instead, we're going to highlight a few themes that we see in the text as we just kind of work through it. Uh, And so to see plagues five to nine today, we're actually going to be studying all of chapters nine and 10, which is over 60 verses. Uh, And so because of that, we're just going to jump in. I want to go ahead and give you my main point for today. So my my main idea for our time this morning is that God's power and salvation destroy idolatry. It's going to be the main thing that we're going to see today. Again, that God's power and salvation destroy idolatry. Uh, And so to see this, we're going to see three themes as we study chapters 9 and 10. The first one is Egypt's idolatry. The second one is God's power. And the third is God's salvation. And when we study the plagues, we need to understand that none of this is random. Uh, As we've seen already in our study of the book of Exodus, God's people, Israel, they were enslaved to the Egyptians. They were enslaved to Pharaoh in Egypt. 
And God promised to Moses that he was going to liberate them from slavery, that he was going to free them from slavery, and that he was going to bring them into the promised land that he had promised to Abraham. A couple weeks ago, we were in Exodus chapter 5. We saw Moses and Aaron. They went before Pharaoh for the first time, and they declared, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go. And we saw Pharaoh respond by asking the question, Who is the Lord that I should obey him? Pharaoh, in his pride, asked, Who is this God of yours? that I should obey what he says. And the plagues are God's very, very intentional answer to that question. Through the plagues, God is answering Pharaoh's question, who is the Lord, by saying, I am the Lord. Uh, Again, none of this is random. As we'll see today, God is putting some very important things on display through the plagues. So again, with that being said, uh, let's go ahead and open up our Bibles. Again, Exodus chapters 9 and 10 for today. We're going to look at Exodus chapter 9, starting in verse 1. It says, then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very, very severe plague upon all your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt so that nothing of all that belong to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time, saying, tomorrow, this thing will, tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. So here we have the fifth plague. God has all the livestock of the Egyptians die. Uh, and then we're just going to continue reading, go straight into verse 8 and look at the sixth plague. It says, And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln, and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt, and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh. And Moses threw it in the air, and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. And so we're going to go ahead and pause there and camp out in these first couple plagues for just a moment. Uh, And so here at the beginning, I just want to take a moment right at the start to remind us of this pattern that we're seeing develop in the plagues. Uh, First, God speaks to Moses. God commands him to go before Pharaoh to command he release the Israelites from slavery and then threaten Pharaoh with the plague if he denies it. Each time Pharaoh's heart has remained hardened, he says no, and then God brings that plague that he promised. We saw this last week with the first four plagues, and we see it right away here with the plagues of livestock and boils. Uh, And so just as a reminder, again, if if maybe you're joining us for the first time, or maybe you missed our service last week, uh, Eric spent the majority of his time last week talking about what it means that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Uh, And so I'm not really going to dive into that today. Uh, I realize that as I read through the plagues, we're going to see that come up time and time again. Uh, But if that's something that interests you, and again, you missed our service last week, I'd encourage you to go online and check out his sermon. But as I mentioned, as we work through our text for today, we're going to focus on three specific themes that we see in chapters 9 and 10. Again, the first one being Egypt's idolatry, the second one being God's power, and the third one being God's salvation. And, And so the first thing that I want us to see today is that the plagues display Egypt's idolatry. It's the first theme that we see. Again, the nature of the plagues themselves are actually targeted towards showing us Egypt's idolatry. 
Obviously, I realize we are quite removed from ancient Egyptian culture and religion, so we actually probably missed this on just a simple reading of the text. But you see, scholars and commentators have pointed out that each plague that God brought upon the Egyptians, it paralleled with Egyptian gods. So the Egyptians, they were polytheists, which is obviously different than what we are as Christians. We're monotheists. We uh, believe in one God manifest in three persons. But the Egyptians, they were polytheists. They believed in thousands of gods. Like many cultures throughout history, they had specific gods for specific parts of creation, like a god of the sun or a god of the ocean. Uh, And so again, unless we have at least a little bit of an understanding of ancient Egyptian culture and religion, we might miss one of the things that God was doing through the plagues. And that's that through the plagues, God was showing himself to be the one true God and was pointing out the false gods that the Egyptians worshipped. And so let me quickly backtrack to to last week. I'm going to quickly backtrack to the first four plagues uh, and give you some context for this. So last week, we saw the first four plagues of Egypt. First, we saw God turn the Nile River into blood. Second, we saw God overwhelm the Egyptians with frogs. Next, God brought a plague of gnats, which, by the way, just sounds terrible. Uh, and last, God brought a plague of flies. So, so you might ask, well, how do these things connect to the false gods of Egypt? Well, again, the Egyptians, they had gods that correlated with each of these plagues. The Egyptians, they had a god named Happy, ironically, that was the god of the Nile. They had a god named Heket that, was, that had the head of a frog. They also had a god named Geb that was the god of the earth or the dust of the earth. And so God turns dust into gnats. And they also had a god named Kefri, which had the head of a fly. So in each of the plagues last week, God was actually exposing Egypt's idolatry and was showing them that they were worshiping false gods. He was showing in very powerful, but also very intentional plagues that he was the one true God. Uh, again, none of what we're reading is random. Which brings us to plagues five and six that I just read for us this morning. The first plague that I read was the plague of livestock. As we saw, God has all the livestock of the Egyptians die. Uh, And so what is God demonstrating through that? Well, the Egyptians, they had a God named Hather. And Hather, for the Egyptians, was the goddess of love and protection and was portrayed with the head of a cow. So in striking striking down the livestock of Egypt, God again was showing himself to be the one true God. Uh, He was showing that he, not Hather, was ultimately the God of love and protection. And secondly, we had the sixth plague, the plague of boils. The Egyptians, they also had a goddess named Iris, who for them served as the goddess of medicine, healing, and peace. So what does God do? He has Moses and Aaron throw some soot in the air that becomes boils or sores on all the people of Egypt. He basically says, hey, you have a God over medicine, healing, and peace, but let me show you that Iris is nothing more than a false idol. Again, showing he is the one true God, that he is God over sickness, health, and peace. So you might ask, why do I share all this? You might be wondering, what does this history lesson have to do with me sitting here in 21st century America? Well, I want to take just a moment here to point out that we are not so different from the Egyptians. I know that we like to think that we are, but in reality, we're not. When we think about idolatry or false gods, many times in our Western culture, we think uh, about other cultures. We think about people bowing down to physical idols that they've carved for themselves. Uh, And that is definitely one form of idolatry. I don't want to downplay that. But idolatry can take on many forms. Idolatry doesn't mean just physically getting on your knees and bowing down to a statue. Idolatry is directing your life towards anything but the one true God. So whether you've realized it or not, every single one of us have idols. I mean, even if you're joining us online here today and you're pretty irreligious, you'd say, I don't really believe in a God. I don't believe in a religion. I'm here to tell you today that you also have idols. One of the best books that I could ever recommend on this idea of idolatry would be a book by Tim Keller called Counterfeit Gods. would encourage you guys to read that. 
But in that book, he describes what an idol is in this way. He says an idol is something we cannot live without. We must have it. Therefore, it drives us to break rules we once honored to harm others, even ourselves, in order to get it. He's getting at the idea that an idol can be many things. An idol is the thing in life that gives us purpose. As he says, an idol is the thing we cannot live without. An idol is the thing we're spending our entire lives working towards. So the Egyptians, they had physical idols, and some of us here today might be tempted to look back on that. And Really? You know? But whether you realize it or not, you also have idols that you figuratively bow to. I mean, in America, we have tons of idols. We idolize things like money, success, freedom, sex, influence, people, relationships. I mean, the list could kind of go on forever there. I mean, for the last 20 years, we've literally had a show on TV called American Idol. Idol is in the name of the show. Uh, The point is, we idolize tons of things in America. We idolize money so much that we neglect our health, we neglect our family, and we work, and we work, and we work, and we're not happy because we can't get enough money. We idolize approval. We want people to like us. And so what do we do? We, we lie about the hard things in our lives. We post the best pictures from the best moments of our lives on social media and pretend like nothing hard is happening in our lives, even though underneath it all, some of us are depressed and lonely. We idolize sex. Everything we do is about trying to find the next person or the next perverted abuse of God's gift of sex. And at the end of it all, we can find ourselves empty. We idolize people. We put all of our hope into kids, spouses, and friends, but each and every one of those people let us down, and when they do, it crushes us. I mean, just think back to Tom Brady from the beginning of our time. This is the reason that after he'd gotten everything that he'd idolized, everything that we idolize as a culture, he can look at it all and say there has to be more. He had money, he had approval, he had sex, and he had people. But when he got it, he realized that he was still longing for something greater. You see, none of these things were ever supposed to bear the weight of our entire lives. Money, approval, sex, people, relationships, influence, all of those things are good gifts from God, but they were never intended to take the place of God in our lives. It's not that any of those things are inherently bad, but as humans, we have a tendency to take a good gift, a good thing from God, and make it a God thing. And when we have, we find ourselves in the exact same situation as the Egyptians, bowing down to false gods that can never satisfy us. And so culturally, we understand this. We understand that we have idols. But I want to lean in a moment here and speak to those of us today that are Christians. You know, we look in or we look out and we see, um, you know, the idols that we have in our culture. uh, And we say amen whenever I call those things out. But first of all, we're, we're not immune to those things. You know, we also fall into some of those exact same idols. But maybe even more dangerous, we oftentimes fashion our own Christian idols in our Christian culture. For one, We are so prone in the church to idolizing our reputation. We want everyone to see us and be in awe of how good we are. We want people to see how good of a Christian we are. And so what does that lead to? It leads to not confessing sin because we're scared it's going to ruin the way people see us. We're we're worried it's going to ruin our reputation. And so unrepentant sin, it festers in our hearts. It grows in our hearts and we don't confess it because we're idolizing our reputation. This also leads to us seeking to be affirmed by others every single time we are obedient to Jesus. We want someone to look in and be like, wow, you're doing so great. Now, now don't get it twisted. We are commanded in Scripture to build one another up, to lift one another up, to encourage one another. But so many times, if we're just kind of being real with one another, the approval that we tend to get from our brothers and sisters or other people, it tends to mean more to us than the approval that we have from God. And so if we look into our hearts and we see this idol of reputation, we need to adopt the exact same mind as Paul in Galatians 6.14 where he says this. He says, But far be it from me to boast, except 
in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Additionally, we are so prone in the church to idolize being right. Yes, it is absolutely essential that we strive for truth. We know that Jesus himself is the truth. But how often in the church do we justify arguing about pointless or silly things under the umbrella or under the idea of truth? I mean, Titus 3.9 says it clearly. It says this, But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. So yes, Christians, we should stand up for the truth of the gospel. We should stand up for the truth of the Bible. But let's not divide ourselves and argue over small, senseless things under the umbrella of truth. You know, just to name a couple more, we also have a tendency to lift up the gift of marriage in the church and downplay the gift of singleness that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 7. And one of the things that we've probably all been guilty of at times is, is idolizing comfort. You know, we're comfortable doing the, the comfortable part of our Christian lives, like coming to church, doing our quiet times. We'll do that, but we don't want to do hard things for Jesus. We sometimes lack missional urgency or a willingness to sacrifice for his kingdom. And so again, these are just a few of the idols that I see sneak into the church, but there are so many things that could sneak into our hearts. We are so prone as sinful people to fall and, and to, prone to turn to worthless idols. But I hope that whether you are a Christian or not, you can, be, you can see very clearly that we, like the Egyptians, we also have idols. And so we've seen this first theme of idolatry. But let's go ahead and continue. We're going to read the seventh plague, starting in verse 13. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. Before this power I have raised you, or for this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as has never Right? such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. And I'll jump down to verse 23. It says, Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire ran down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. And so here we have the seventh plague. God rains down hail on the land of Egypt. Again, we see this same routine play out where Moses goes before Pharaoh. Pharaoh rejects God's word, and then God brings that plague. But I want to take a few moments here to zoom in on verses 14 to 16, because this is where we see our second theme for today uh, kind of come to light. So let's reread verses 14 to 16. As a reminder, Moses here is speaking to Pharaoh on behalf of God, and he says this, For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. Before this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So really quickly, I just want to say to those of us that are Christians today, God is continuing to fulfill his words from the end of verse 16. I mean, here we are 
thousands of years later, thousands of miles away from the land of Egypt, talking about the power that God displayed through the plagues. And so Christian, let this be a reminder to us, a good reminder for us that God's mission, it's going to be fulfilled. And how awesome is it that we get to be a part of that? But more to the point here, these couple verses are absolutely massive for our understanding of the plagues. I mean, this is actually one of the most direct explanations that we get in Exodus about what God is doing through the plagues. In verse 15, God essentially says, hey, Pharaoh, if I wanted to just end you, cut you off from the earth, I could snap my fingers and it would be done. I mean, after all, this is the God that created the entire universe by just speaking a word. But then in verse 16, he explains why he hasn't done that. God says this, for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. And so this brings to light our second theme from today. That's that the plagues display God's power. Again, for context, remember that back in Exodus chapter 5, Pharaoh asked that question. He said, who is the Lord that I should obey him? And we've said that through the plagues, God is answering that question by saying, I am the Lord. I am the one true God. In verse 16, God said he raised up for the purpose, he raised up Pharaoh for the purpose of showing him who he is, of showing him his power. You know, as Christians, we say this all the time. We say that God is omnipotent or that God is all-powerful. But I don't want us to miss one of the things that this means practically that we see here from the text. You know, we just saw that God is the one true God through looking at the false gods of Egypt, but we also see here that God in his power is a righteous judge. I mean, this is possibly the most obvious theme that we've seen so far in our study of Exodus. I know Eric even hit on this a little bit last week. But from the very start, several weeks ago, we've seen Egypt's sin and God's pronouncement of judgment. You know, we've already seen this morning that God's judgment is also coming against Egypt's idolatry. So through each of the plagues, God is demonstrating his power. He's showing his powerful and righteous judgment. And in situations like this, where we have one group of people enslaving another group of people, we love the fact that God is a righteous judge, and, and rightfully so, we love that. When we see horrifying societal sin like we do here with the Egyptians, we rejoice over this story of God's judgment and Israel's freedom. You know, it's the exact same idea as us today looking back at World War II, seeing the horrific tragedies that were carried out by the Nazis and rejoicing over their defeat. You know, we don't have a problem looking back at Hitler, looking back at the Nazis and saying they deserve the judgment of God, and rightfully so. It's also the reason that we can look back at our past societal sin in our own country through things like the genocide of Native Americans, through slavery or Jim Crow, and we can say that is not right, that deserves the judgment of God. And you know, it's also the reason that we can look into our society today, see things like mass incarceration or, or sex trafficking, and we can say that is not right, that deserves the judgment of God. And very briefly to this point, let me just say this. This is the reason that as believers we should be fighting for justice. We serve a God that hates sin. We serve a God that hates systems of oppression. We see that very clearly through God's judgment of Egypt in the plagues. And when I talk about righteous judgment, I talk about fighting for justice, I need us to understand something here, and that's that righteousness and justice are twins. The Greek words for righteousness and justice actually share the same root word, dikaios. So they come from the same branch, so to speak. So when I talk about the righteous judgment of God condemning systems of oppression, I need us to understand that that's almost the exact same thing as me saying that God is for justice. The reality is, far too often in the church in America, we've turned a blind eye to pursuing justice. We've made an unbiblical divide between our personal lives and our public lives. We're fine with talking and preaching about personal righteousness, but we've turned a blind eye to advocating for the oppressed, 
speaking out against systems of oppression. However, we know from verses like Isaiah 117 and Micah 6, 8, just to name a few, that that should not be the case. Because we serve a God who is a righteous judge, we should be pursuing both righteousness and justice. We should be on the front lines of pursuing righteousness and we should be on the front lines of pursuing justice. We can't just choose one. We have to pursue both. And again, we get there. We, we see that because we see through the plagues God's heart. It's against injustice. I'd love to continue peeling back the layers of this, but we do need to continue. Uh, again, I just showed us that when we see huge societal sin through things like genocide or slavery, we love the judgment of God. But we need to ask the question, by what standard does God judge, right? You see, we don't have a hard time looking back at, at God's judgment of Egypt and saying, yep, they deserved it, and rightfully so. But we need to ask this morning, what is the standard that God judges by? Well, Jesus gives us the answer to that question in Matthew 5, 48. This verse comes from the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. You might be familiar with it. In this sermon, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He's just finished retelling some Old Testament laws and exposing that each and every one of us fall short of God's standard. And then in verse 48, Jesus comes out and he says plainly what that standard is. He says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And what a statement from Jesus here. He's saying, if you, do, if you want to get into heaven, if you don't want to face the righteous judgment of God, then you have to be perfect as God is perfect. You see, the standard for God's judgment is his own perfection. So we, we look back at the Egyptians, the Nazis, we look at the evil in our own nation, and we rightly talk about judgment. But we often fail to recognize that we all fall short of God's standard. I mean, even as Christians, I know sometimes we can be tempted to think, well, yeah, like I'm a sinner in need of grace, I get that but I'm not really like enslaving anyone, not committing genocide. But again, we need to understand God's standard is his own perfection. Romans 3.23, it says it this way. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. So the reality is compared to God's holiness, all of us equally deserve judgment. Before a holy, righteous, perfect God, all of us deserve his judgment. So don't miss this. I know what I'm about to say right now, it might feel shocking at first, it might, honestly, it might make us cringe. It might be hard for us to digest. But this is true according to Scripture. And that's that before God, we are just as guilty in our sin as Pharaoh. Before God, we are just as guilty as Hitler. Before God, we are just as guilty as slave owners and sex traffickers. I mean, do we realize the weight of what the Bible says about sin? Do we realize the weight of even one sin before a holy, perfect God? You know, I don't say those things for shock value. I totally realize the earthly consequences for all sin is different. I mean, just a moment ago, I showed us that as Christians, we should be fighting against systems of oppression. However, my point is that the eternal consequences for all sin is the same, and that is the righteous judgment of God. Before a righteous God, every single human being, regardless of the size of our sin, we stand condemned. And so God tells Pharaoh in verse 16, I've raised you up to show you my power, to show you that I'm the one true God, to show you that I'm a righteous judge. And honestly, as you sit in your chair right now or you're joining us online, I hope that you feel in your heart right now what I have felt as I prepared to preach today. And that is that in my sin and idolatry, I deserve, we deserve the righteous judgment of God that we see here in the plagues. But praise God, at the same time, the sermon is not over yet. There's one more theme that I want us to see, and so we're going to look to chapter 10. So let's continue reading chapter 10, starting in verse 1. It says, then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants. 
that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. And then right after this, in verses 3 to 20, I'm not going to read those, but right after this, in verses 3 to 20, God brings the next plague, which is the plague of locusts. Uh, We again see Pharaoh's heart remain hardened, and then we actually see Pharaoh falsely repent, and that leads us to the last plague for today, starting in verse 21. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we, are, we must take of them to serve the Lord our God, and we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again. And so here we have the last plague that we're covering for today. Pharaoh, he again doesn't let the people go, and so God brings a plague of darkness over the land of Egypt for three full days. It's actually so dark that in verse 23 it says that they didn't see one another. So they couldn't see each other. And it says that they didn't rise from their place for three days, so they didn't even get out of bed. I mean, this is unimaginable darkness. God again continues to show his power by darkening the entire land of Egypt for three days. But at the same time, at the end of verse 23, we see the other incredibly important and helpful theme come to light. So look back at verse 23 just one more time. It says, They did not see one another again, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. So right here at the end of verse 23, we see that God brought darkness over the entire land of Egypt, but the Israelites, they were unaffected. The entire land around them was pitch dark, but the Israelites still had light where they were. Again, God spared the Israelites from this plague. And you may or may not have realized this as I've walked through and read the other plagues this morning, but this idea, it's actually been there the entire time. In the plague of the livestock, the the fifth plague, back in chapter 9 and verse 4, it says this, But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. So though all the livestock in Egypt died, the Israelites' livestock, they were completely unaffected. Next, look to the end of chapter 9 in the seventh plague, the plague of hail. It says this in verse 26, Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. So again, imagine this scene, right? God rains down unbelievable amounts of hail from heaven. I mean, the Bible went into detail showing us just how much hail is falling. But, and it's falling in this entire land surrounding the Israelites. But in this place named Goshen, where the Israelites were, they were, there was no hail. They were unaffected. And lastly, look to the very start of chapter 10, where God actually explains what he's doing for the Israelites. Again, chapter 10, starting in verse 1. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson, how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them that you may know that I am the Lord. So God comes right out in these verses and tells Moses, the plagues for the Egyptians are a sign for you. I mean, for the Israelites, the plagues, they aren't even really plagues. They're a sign of God's salvation. 
Uh, Again, this is the final theme that we're going to see, that the plagues display God's salvation. So far, we've seen again that the plagues reveal Egypt's idolatry and sin. We've seen that the plagues are his way of righteously judging the Egyptians. But at the same time, the plagues are also God's way of bringing salvation to the Israelites. All of this is interconnected. God is fulfilling his promise to Moses and the Israelites that he's going to liberate them from slavery in Egypt. And as we'll see next week, next week we're going to finish up the plagues. We're going to look at the 10th one, talk about the Passover, and we're going to see that the plagues do lead to Israel's freedom. But in light of all that we've talked about today, I want us to consider God's salvation. Again, the first point that I made was that the plagues display Egypt's idolatry. And after that, I showed us that all of us, like Egypt, we all fall into this. We all have idols. And so here's a question for us to consider. Is God saving the Israelites because they themselves don't have any idols? Like, like is that why God is saving them? Well, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that that answer is a resounding no. All throughout the Old Testament, Israel continually falls away from God and worships false gods. And in fact, we see this happen just a little bit later in the book of Exodus when they worship a golden calf. And in the book of Hosea, God goes as far as comparing Israel to a prostitute. So clearly God is not saving the Israelites on the basis of them themselves not having idols. Then think about the second theme that I talked about. Pointed out that the plagues display God's power. We saw that God is a righteous judge. And again, we saw the reality of God's standard of perfection. And we talked about the fact that we all fall short of that. So was Moses or Israel perfect? Is that why God saved them? And of course it's no. We've, we've already actually seen this in our study of Exodus. I mean, in week two of our study of Exodus, we saw Moses literally kill a guy. And then on top of that, we've seen Moses and the Israelites doubt God over and over and over again. So so did God save the Israelites because they lived up to his standard of perfection? And of course, the answer to that question is no. No, God saved Israel in spite of their idolatry and sinfulness. The Israelites had done nothing to deserve God's salvation. God saved them because of who he is. God saved them because he is gracious and merciful. God saved them because he is a God of justice and righteousness. And Christian, that's exactly what God has done for us. You know, honestly, whether you're joining us online, you're not a believer, you're a Christian here today, you know, what I've said at this point, to this point today, may come across as harsh at times, I understand that. But I hope that I've convinced you by now that we as humanity, as humans, we are an idolatrous and sinful people because until we understand that truth, we will not understand the beauty of God's salvation. The beauty of Exodus is not that God came and he saved a righteous people from an unrighteous ruler. The beauty of Exodus is that God saved an unrighteous people to display his character. On one hand, by saving the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, God demonstrated his hatred for oppression. We just talked about that. But additionally, by saving the Israelites, God demonstrated his great grace in the midst of his people's sin. And again, that's exactly what God has done for us. We, like the Egyptians and like the Israelites, have turned away from our Creator and we have worshipped things of this world as if they are God. And because of that sin, we all deserve the plague of God's wrath. We all deserve God's righteous judgment. But the beauty of the gospel is that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were dead in our sin, worshipping things like money, success, marriage, reputation, sex, Jesus came to bear the penalty for our sin. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came down from heaven took on human flesh and lived a life of complete devotion to God. Jesus never once sinned. He never once turned to worthless idols. But at the end of his life, he died a sinner's death. And he gladly went to the cross because on the cross, Jesus bore the full plague of God's wrath and judgment that it might be taken off of us. 
And beyond that, Jesus rose from the dead three days later, demonstrating his power over even death itself. And the offer to each and every one of us this morning is to lay down our idols, to lay down our sin at the foot of the cross and be called children of God. I mean, just remember back to the end of chapter 9. Again, God's plague of hail, it didn't affect the Israelites as they were in the land of Goshen. The reality is, though we deserve God's judgment through Christ, God's wrath, it passes by us like it did for the Israelites in Goshen. You could say it this way, Jesus bore the full plague of God's wrath to provide salvation for his people. We all fall short of God's perfect standard and deserve to experience the full plague of God's wrath for our idolatry, but Jesus took it for us. And through faith in him, God looks upon us and he sees Jesus' perfection. You know, I mentioned earlier, uh, kind of the really hard reality, that in light of God's righteousness, we stand just as condemned as Pharaoh, we stand just as condemned as Hitler, as, as any number of oppressors. But the other great truth is that in Christ, through the gospel, that is no longer true of us anymore. Through the gospel, we no longer have this identity as idolater or sinner. Through the gospel, we have been given the identity as children of the one true God. Through faith in Christ, we meet God's standard of perfection, not because of what we've done, but because of what he has done for us. And so in light of this truth, I want to end our time today by addressing two groups of people. So first, let me speak to those of you, again, who maybe are joining us online. Maybe uh, you're, you're not a Christian. My plea to you this morning is very simple, and that's to turn to Christ. I don't know what it is for you, but I stand on the authority of the Bible. I stand on the authority of the Word of God this morning, and I can say with confidence that you are looking for fulfillment or satisfaction in something of this world. And that thing, whatever it is, maybe success, money, sex, approval, whatever that thing is, it has become your idol, the thing that you are worshiping with your life. So again, my plea to you this morning, it's simple. Don't waste your entire life chasing after things that won't fulfill you. I mean, think back to Tom Brady. You know, the reality is he can look at everything that he has and he can say there has to be more because he made it. He got everything and he can say there has to be more. And so my cry to you this morning is don't chase these things as if they will fulfill you. Do not wait until the end of your life to realize that the things that you were seeking to find fulfillment in were fleeting. What you're searching for in these idols, Jesus offers fully. Again, the full plague of God's judgment is going to be poured out on the sin and idolatry of this world, so please do not continue in the hard-heartedness as Pharaoh did. Turn to Jesus and experience the goodness of his salvation. And lastly, to the Christian, again, as we think about this idea of idolatry, I want to bring back up the idea that we too in the church, we, we can fall into this. Maybe on one hand, maybe we too idolize things like success, money, influence, sex, people. Or maybe we idolize some trickier things that don't seem as bad on the surface. I shared a few things that I've idolized at times earlier. I talked about reputation, being right, marriage or comfort. And so maybe some of those things are true for you. The reality is, is I don't know what those things are for you. I don't know what things you tend to idolize my hope right now is that in just a moment as we go to God and pray that you would have those things in your mind and that we would lay those things down at the cross and remember the salvation that God has brought us through Jesus. But also my plea to you this morning is to talk to someone about it. In fact, in our D groups this week, it would be great if we could just take some intentional time to just confess the idols of our heart to one another. James 5.16 says that healing comes through confession. And so let's confess the idolatry of our hearts to one another this week. But again, right now, as we finish out and we go to God in prayer, let's ask him to remove those things. Let's pray. 
Father, we come before you this morning humbled, humbled in light of the, your grace, in light of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. God, we know that we are idolaters, that we are sinners. God, that we deserve judgment. But God, we thank you that through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, you don't see us as an idolater or a sinner anymore. You see us as child of the one true king. God, I pray that we would live in that reality this week. God, I pray for those things that are in our minds, that are in our hearts right now, that, that we know that we tend to idolize. God, we lay those things down at your feet. God, we ask that you would take those things from us. God, that you would help us to, to lean into you and to see you as our one true God. God, for those that may be listening online that are not believers, God, I pray that you would save them. God, you would help them to see that the things that they're chasing after, after in this life, that they are fleeting. And God, I pray that they would, you would bring them to faith to see that you are the one true God. We thank you for all this. We thank you for your grace. In Christ's name.